0: October 13th, 2022, we're in Masechet, Sanhedrin and Afkofyod Amud Aleph in the wide lines. It came down five lines. It's uh, four words into the line. The Gemara is being Doresh initially. This Pasuk from Kohelet. The pasuk says, Shamur Pasuk says that when uh, the owner has guarded a certain wealth, it sometimes is lera'atot, sometimes works to their own detriment, works against them in a way that's bad for them. Amarish Lakish ze'oshro shel Korach. suggests this is the wealth of Korah. It was his richness, it was his ability to see himself at the center, his honor, his glory. His uh, his influence that brought him down this uh, this road of rebellion it says the pasuk along these lines with regards to seeing the osher the wealth of Korach as part of his downfall the pasuk says that the ground swallowed up the people who were uh, in their midst uh, meaning the people part of the rebellion but furthermore it says vet kol it says all of that which was at their feet. That's a reference to the wealth of a person. Why is that the reference in the Pasuk which talks about that which was at their feet? amido Our wealth oftentimes causes us a certain comfort, a certain stability of mind. And that's what we see as placing us on our feet. You have placed yourself on your feet you gave yourself a certain stability, that's what went down with Korah ve'adato, not only the people, not only their children and their wives and their homes, but they're all sharing the pasukos out of its way then to mention that to us because that's the downfall. That was the initial downfall and that's the ultimate downfall of the people losing their wealth, which is what brought them into the fray of this rebellion. Ve'amar Bilevi, Masui 300 peradot levanot if you were to understand how many keys there were to get into the treasure houses of Korah. You'd have to understand, this seems to be an exaggerated number in imagery, but uh, the, the point is made. It was 300 white mules which would have to carry just the keys which would open the treasure houses of the wealths of, of Korah. And I understand the type of description we're giving. We're talking about him being wealthy beyond comprehension, uh, beyond uh, anyone's wildest imagination. You needed just these mules who were white, I don't know, I think it's just (laughs) the imagery more than anything, needed to carry just the keys. We're not even talking about the treasure houses, which would enter into the treasure house where he had all his gold, silver, and money. And furthermore, says the Gemara, or says Rabbi Levi, and you should know, all of the locks and all of the keys were made of gildah. Gildah, Rashi says, is or or means skin, leather. That's right. So Rashi has one of two interpretations here on the right-hand side, about six, seven lines before the uh, end of Rashi on the right-hand side. Rashi says the first interpretation is that the leather, as opposed to, I guess, metal of some sort, is lighter, which means to say those keys and locks were light, and there were so many of them, and nonetheless that you needed three hundred mules to carry them. In other words, if they were heavy heavy keys and locks, all right, so you're already taking away from some of the effect how much he had. They were light and nonetheless you needed three hundred mules that's one interpretation. Second interpretation of Rashi, again, either way you slice it, the point is made, but the second interpretation of Rashi is uh, the, those treasure houses, what was storing the wealth? So the suggestion is what was storing the wealth was some sort of leather fabric or some sort of leather uh, encasing. Uh, so it gives a certain honor, it gives a certain understanding of how much he had and how it was protected. All right, regardless, the statement is made in the Gemara with regards to the Hachamim getting across, Korach was quite a wealthy individual, understand it as such, and in turn, take the message to heart. That's what brought him down this uh, path of rebellion. Be careful with your own wealth, Is the message of the Chachamim. You should know, says this statement of Rabbi Hama, Yosef uh, says, There were, he says, three uh, storages of treasures, That Yosef, of course, Yosef during his prime has uh, almost all the riches of the world, is the way the Torah seems to describe it. Uh, He, to a certain extent, has the, he certainly has all the wealth, all the uh, monetary possessions of the Egyptians. But everyone from most, if not all, civilizations are coming to him during that time period in order to pay him for any sustenance, for any food. So he's got a lot of money, and the Torah describes how much money he has stored. So he stored away, he hid away in the uh, imagination of the Chachamim, three specific uh, storehouses of, of riches. One of them, uh, the, uh, the, the vision is, was uh, revealed by Korah. That's where he achieved, that's where he attained all his wealth from. Uh, well let's just read the statement through to try to understand it. the hadnit galeta le ben as virus and the second one was to Antoninus. Antoninus was the king of Rome Rome during the time of Rabbi Akiva. I mean, we know about him from Gemara, from, from, uh, from statements of the Tanaim and Emoraim. Uh, he was quite a wealthy person. He lived a very luxurious lifestyle. Uh, we're looking at this not very positively. The first is the Korach wealth achieved from Yosef. The second is from Antoninus. So the third is going to be surprising. I think that's the punchline of the Midrash. And the Ahad Ginozala Sadikim Le'atid Lavo. The third one is for the righteous people in the future. But I thought it's for Korah and for Antoninus, what's that? Huh? With lots of keys as well. No, but I think more than anything, the description here in the Gemara is that wealth is not per se something evil, rotten, and terrible. It begins with Yosef, is the way the Chachamim are describing it. But when misused, when wrongfully uh, used and utilized in uh, staging rebellion and persecuting against others, in turning to Abu and so on and so forth, well, that's what the allure of wealth and riches can be. Alternatively, the righteous people, the sadikim, the atid Lavo, if they're using it in the appropriate fashion as they will, well, that's the third of these matmoniot, of these hidden treasures of yourself. To poor rebel as well, absolutely, but it does generally speaking, uh, this, is, uh, this is me speaking not as a rabbi, more as a psychologist, it generally speaking <laughs> takes less courage yes. for the wealthy to rebel than for the poor. The poor rebel when they're so downtrodden to the extent that, Baomai uh, mad we can't do anything more, so ah, we have no other choice. We're literally going to die. But the wealthy, generally speaking, certainly the warning of the hachamim is we see in our achievements, we see in our achievements, we have this rebellious nature because we feel successful, it goes to our head. It's more than anything, words of warning, not only a reality, Nathan. Uh, so now the Gemara, for just a few lines, will uh, to try to determine what happened to Korah. We know about two punishments uh, with regards to two segments of the rebellion um, uh, in, in the story of Korah, in Parashat Korah. There are 250 men who are, uh, bring Ketoret, right? Moshe commands these 250 men, we read about them earlier, yesterday, they were important people, Moed, Dan Shehem, and so forth. Moshe says to them, stand tomorrow, if you recall the story, with pans and light Ketoret, and we'll see who God chooses, and 250 of them are burnt to death. That's 250, but then we just a moment ago we're reading about that swallowed ground. We know that part of the story as well. Which part, which group was Korah a part of with regards to what we understand to be his ultimate demise and death? So this first statement, that of Rabbi Hanan is he was neither swallowed by the ground nor was he burned, not in that first group of 250 men, nor in the second of the families of Korach and Datan and Avi What happened to him? The understanding is that he died afterwards in a Magiefah. There was a plague afterwards amongst Am Yisrael. Now, before we read the, 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 the Derashot and the Pesukim, I'll suggest, and this is my own suggestion, with regard, why wasn't he a part of that? I, I think that oftentimes when we watch... When we watch, we were a part of something, not oftentimes, this should never be a part of us, but if you're a part of something that, that falls, it's more difficult to, to be the outsider. You're a part of something, and it's falling, and it's being taken down, but you're set apart from it, uh, all the people are looking at you, you as an outsider, instead of just falling together with those who did evil, Korach is just watching all his people falling and uh, to a certain extent feeling the guilt and understanding his part in this. So to watch the fall of the 250 men inspired by him, to watch his family members and Datan Naviram's family members and all their wealth falling down, this is the worst that could happen to Korach. Instead of just having a quick and swift death with one of those groups, Korach has left a a solitary reminder of what happened and then he dies. Uh, so, and so, and to a large extent, I, I've more than once suggested, Korah has a lack of self-definition. Uh, Korach is constantly defining himself by others. After all, that is his claim. We should all be equal. He's bringing others along with him. Korach has a difficulty self-defining. That's what his wife said to him, we read it yesterday, you should all wear the blue, because you're all equal, you're all parallel. Korach needs to be the remaining individual who looks at others and says, what was my role in this? Who am I in truth? He has a difficulty, what psychologists would call authenticating, finding his own individual. What Abraham was uh, exemplified with regards to knowing and understanding that I can stand out and I can trailblaze a, a certain approach because I can be different than others and achieve and inspire others to truth by so doing, Korach doesn't. So the statement then is he was lo min abeloim v'lo mina Now derashot with regards to how we know he was neither one of those. He dies afterwards lo How do I know that he wasn't swallowed by the ground? The pasuk says that haadam asher lekorach who was swallowed by the ground. Who was who was who was swallowed? Kol haadam asher All the people who were to Korah. but it doesn't. Yeah, because it mentions as well. There, it mentions as. Read the whole pasuk. You want to read the whole pasuk? As says says the whole pasuk. it's at otem Right? So it says them, meaning the people, and their homes, and all the people. It's not Korach. Right? So the, the reference is not to Korach, Is the understanding of this. The next quote in the says it's Hang on, we've got to get there. You're right. 100%, give it a second. According to this opinion, the first opinion over here, he wasn't burnt either. As as the Pasuk says, with regards to those who were burnt, the Pasuk says, pasuk says when the fire consumed the 250 men and the derashah is velo korach, but not korach. Okay, now says the Gemara, we have a beraita, which seems to disagree with this. Korach was, and Jesse will get to your pasuk in a moment right here, he was both from those who were consumed from the fire and from those who were swallowed. How could it be he was both? Suggests so Rashi really basing himself on the Gemara earlier in our Peric. If you look on the left-hand side, Rashi, three lines from the top, says Rashi, nishmato, whereas the 250 people were fully consumed, Korach's soul was burnt in that initial uh, conflagration. Kayam, but his body was still existent. I can't explain that to you, but that's the description. We saw such a reality earlier in our harkah And afterwards, nitgalgel ad mekom habeloim Afterwards, he kind of rolled himself. He found himself in the place where they were to be swallowed and he was, his body was then swallowed. That's the pasuk we're going to deal with right now. Okay, so that's the suggestion then goes as follows. He was both burnt with regards to his soul. He was then swallowed with regards to his body. According to this, The pasuk says, so there it is, so, says Jesse. You see, he swallowed not only them, but it swallowed Korah as well. Says Rashi, uh, how does the uh, first opinion, Rabbi Yohanan, how does he read that Pasuk, which is really what Jesse was asking? Vativlaotam ve'et Korah. Pasuk says it swallowed them and Korah. Uh, how do you explain those words? So Rashi says the, the Rabbi would have to read it like this otam <inaudible> Atnach, stop. It was swallowed. They were swallowed. Pause. And korah. Okay. But either way you slice it. This opinion says that he was first and foremost swallowed. He was also burnt. Minasirufim. Dichtiv. The Pasuk says, (laughs) the <laughs> Pasuk says that the fire came out and consumed the 250 people. Rashi has two interpretations. Either, you should know, the Pasuk does say that not only were 250 people, but Korah and Aharon were all holding mahtot So he was part of the 250 Plus one or two people, he was, or alternatively, Charlie to your derasha, kind of, it's the the it. What's that ribui, The it. The Pasuk says, Vatochal et, not the it. It, hamishimu matayim. say, al hamishimu matayim. What's the it? It, generally speaking, comes to be marbeh, comes to include even korach. Again, either way you understand these dirashot, it's a fundamental mahlokit. Who was, where was korach during time of death? The time of death, the punishment will be very telling with regards to who he was initially, as we briefly touched upon earlier. Says the Gemara, Amar Ravah Rava goes onward with regards to dirashot. Um, in the context of Korach, my what's with this uh, strange pasuk or peculiar pasuk in Habakuk? The pasuk says, <laughs> uh, The most important part with regards to the uh, to the derasha over here, uh, contextually, they're being Doreshis with regards to Korach. Um, as Rashi explains, uh, Rashi writes uh, on the left hand side about 15 lines from the top. Rashi writes, earlier in this chapter in Habakkuk, the Pasuk says, Ketib, vatifga, Vatifka, aretz, the Pasuk says, and the land opened up, the land cracked open. When did the land crack open in our historical consciousness? Of course, during the time of Korah. So the Pisukim then in Habakkuk have this veiled hint and reference to Korah. Then the Pasuk says that the sun and the moon stood in Zevul, so here's what you need to know with regards to understanding this derasha. the Gemara in massechet Hagigah, which is this well-known on this well-known statement of the rabbis, suggests that there are seven layers to the heavens, there are seven layers to the upper realms, and two of them that are most relevant for us, one of them is called Rakiah, that's the second layer, and then the fourth layer is called Zevul, and so the Gemara over there describes there's plenty of rabbinic literature, and even more uh, Kabbalah literature with regards to these seven reki'im. Now, uh, for our purposes, you need to understand that Shemesh and Yareah are understood by the rabbis, described as being in that second layer called raki'ah. The pasuk then describes how the shemesh and the Yareah are in zevul, two layers up. That doesn't make sense. We don't envision. We don't understand the shemesh and the Yareah being in the fourth level of Rikirim. We understand them being in the second. And the perek and Habakkuk here, and perek imal, as Rashi explained to us, seems to be referring to the time of Korach. What happened? Melamed says Rava. Here's my derasha. I gave you all the ingredients to understand that the shemesh Yareah the shemesh uh, the sun and the moon, in an act of defiance, in a moment of uh, self, uh, self-assertion, the sun and the moon turn to God and they ascend against the rules of nature. They go up to the fourth layer, fourth level of 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 rakiyah. and amru de fanav and they turn to akadosh and say ribonoshona master of the universe din amram if you act and and judge in the right the rightful and just way for ben amram for moshe in this rebellion against Korach or Korach against him, all right, then we'll go to where we belong. V'imlav, if you don't, in other words, if you let Korach triumph, if you don't get involved and perform a miracle, lo we're not coming out. I mean, effectively, this is a description, more than anything, leave the particulars aside for a moment, it's a description how when there is in this world a rebellion against the kabod shamayim, against what we understand a Moshe standing for, uh, the rules of nature to a certain extent will shift themselves until things get set straight. And that's how the understanding. Ravah understanding that existentially, that I means having to do with the existence of the world as we know it, the sun and the moon would not operate until... Korach is taken down. Those are bold but very important words. Ad, says the Midrash, says, by As the Pasuk continued and says, somehow there were, um, there were arrows which were thrown or shot at the sun and the moon, telling them, get back to your place. Amalahen lahen, kivyachola, Kadosh Baruch Hu says to the sun and the moon, lo mechitim. You never stood up. You didn't in the past stand up for my kabod. But for the honor of flesh and blood, meaning Moshe Rabbeinu, that's who you stand up for? When did they not stand up for the honor of God? Yad Ramar suggests during the time of Haytaegel. Of course, if we're looking at the desert for a time where there's a rebellion against God, it's Haytaegel. You didn't do anything then, so to speak. Alternatively, what what this refers to when it says Bichvodi Lo Mechitem Rashi, if you take a look at Rashi Bichvodi Lo Mechitem, it's right on the left-hand side in the middle of that column, uh, where it says Bichvodi Lo Mechitem. Says Rashi, Share Bechol Yom, every day Malchem Mizrahu Ma'arav B'Sha'asim Menihim Kitrehem Berasha'eh Berasha' Berosham Mishtahavim LaHama. Rashi describes a Gemara we saw earlier in our parak on Daf Kofhe, if I'm not mistaken, and we saw this in Mas. We know this from. Uh, The description is when the kings of the East and the West place their crowns on their head, meaning when they get up in the morning, get ready for their daily activities, they begin by bowing and worshipping the sun. The sun was seen as a constant, the sun was seen as a, por- a force of power and of deity, of godliness. In turn, says, says Rashid, that's when you don't stand up for my honor. Every single day, the kings of the East and the West are bowing to you, worshipping you, and then you just accept it. But now when it's been Amram, now that it's, Korah, that it's Korah against Moshe, you, you, you feel that you need a stage of rebellion against the re- rebel. The Ha'idna says the Gemara and in turn what happened was nafke, the sun and the moon don't come out until they are struck, until they are hit. Until who's hit? Rashi has two the shonot, Rashi has two interpretations to this. Rashi either says here in on the left hand side, a little bit, just right below that who says Rashi. Gazar first and foremost, first explanation is that was the gezira of God. Hamakom, referring to God. God's decree was that the sun and the moon get daily punished for what happened then. I don't know exactly what that means, I can't tell you how the sun and the moon are punished, but that's the description, first description of Rashi, so to speak, their punishment for standing up for Moshe, but not standing up for him, is. On a daily basis, you guys are punished. Alternatively, Rashi says La Medalla stands <laughs> for "Lashon Achir" or "Lishna Acharina." A different version. "Vahidna LaNafkeh Me'achash Raushi Kbeid Hakadosh Baruch Hu Al Shalom Mechab Lichvodoh Adimachulehu." It says "LaNafkeh SheHashud Lichabod Amakom Al Bnei Adam Meshda Hashemish VeYarech." Says Rashi. The other interpretation is the sun and the moon will first strike the Avdei Avodah Zarah, the people who are rebelling against God. So the question is. Who's getting struck and by whom? Either the version is God striking the sun and the moon before they come out as a result of that, or they learn their lesson and they strike the rebellers against God first, and only then do they come out. Either way you slice it again. I think the fundamental with regards to Rava's statement in this Midrash is how the world in existence in the eyes of the hachamim, in the words of our tradition, cannot work in a straight forward fashion while there is true rebellion against uh, truth in this world, against kevodo shel makom. So as the Gemara Amar Darash Rava, Rava has a further derasha with regards to Korach ve'adato. My Dekhtiv, what does it mean when the Pasuk says that Moshe turns to God and says, V'im beriaa yivra HaShem ufaseta ha'adama et piha. Uh, Moshe turns to God and says, and if. God will bring forth this new creation, the word beriah, bereshit, bara vata we understand as beriah yeshmei something from nothing. Uh, generally speaking over the course of bereshit, perakal, if you don't find that word beriah, you find asiya, you find yesira, you find crafting, you find making creating, bringing forth something, you have Bereshit Bara, an initial creation. So over here, when we talk about Beria, we're talking about something that was not. That's what uh, in Latin you would call creation ex nihilo. But again, in, in our tradition, we call Beria yesh me'ain, something from nothing. Anyway, says the Gemara, it's, it's important for this next line. What was Moshe, explains Rava, saying or requesting of HaKadosh Baruchu? Amar Moshe, Moshe HaKadosh Baruch Moshe turns to God and he says, in Beria, Gehinam Mutav. If there is already the creation of Gehinam, all right, so then we're in a good place. In other words, then uh, this is a rightful end for Korach Ve'adat. And if not God, if there is no Gehinam, Yivra Hashem, God, please create it. Question? No, says the Gemara, Lemai, what are we talking about? Are we actually talking about the creation of Gehinam? Yeah, we're not going to describe Gehinam, but let's understand it as the depths. Let's understand it as the place of punishment for those who did wrong. There was none? Uh, Says the Gemara. Says the Gemara, hold that thought. Maybe it's to actually create it. Uh, So uh, Judah quotes a Gemara. We'll, We'll mention that Gemara in a second. But first... The Gemara quotes a p- pasuk. Doesn't the pasuk say in <laughs> The pasuk says, "There's no new in this world under the sun." That's why I was referring to it just a moment ago. It wasn't. A, a, I wasn't going off on a tangent when I said that the pasuk that is, says. That is, oh, that's an interesting point. I, g- give me one second on that. That's an interesting. I didn't think about that, but. The Gemara doesn't answer that, Nathan, you should understand. The Gemara accepts it as being part of this world. Tachat Hashem is the larger existence, meaning uh, it's a part of, of what is. Um, but that's what I mentioned earlier bara it's all created then. Right? Maybe there was something that precedes that. The Gemara says seven things precede that, one of them being Gehenna but the statement nonetheless is Berejit Elohim, that's when it's all created. It's for that reason you have the Mishnah Navot as well which says that ben Hashem there are certain miracles in the future that were brought forth. Meaning you're not going to have a creation something <coughs> from nothing after that initial one or those initial ones of God. In turn, says the Gemara Gehiram had to be. The Gemara says it preceded creation at the very least. It's at the time of creation. If you're not going to have that Gemara, Nathan has a clever clever suggestion, he says it's not part of Okay, so we'll respond with Judah's Gemara in Nidarim. Ela says the Gemara rather, perhaps this is what it means in this conversation, this dialogue between HaKadosh Bar Moshe and HaKadosh Baruchu. It's to bring the opening closer. In other words, we don't know where the opening to Gehenna is. Actually, the Gemara in Sukkah in the mysterious passage <coughs> does tell us where it is. But re- that notwithstanding, the point is uh, bring that opening to this place for them at this time, (laughs) HaKadosh Baruch Hu. For Korach Ve'adah Tov. Says the Gemara. They say that it was created, meaning that the mouth of Hashem told the land that it has to open up. Before, before. That's that Mishnah Navot I was yeah. referencing. In Ben Hashem Ashot, one of the things was the Pitechat Adama of Korah. Indeed, says the Gemara, but again, that's not the Gehinam per se of this Gemara. That right. might just be so the opening, opening of the gram. Maybe. Says the Gemara, I'm not sure. Says the Gemara, the Pasuk says the sons of Korah did not decease. They didn't die. So as the Gemara Tana Mishum Rabbeinu Ameru, they said in the name of Rabbi Yudah HaNasi, Makom Mitbaser Lahem Begehenah V'yashivu Ala V'Ameru Shirah. You might notice that the Shirah, the Mizmah, we say every day of Sukkot more than once is. i Libnei Korach, Libnei Korach uh, There are several Mizmahim. Libnei Korach, in turn says the Gemara, you want to know who and where they came from? There's a place that was uh, a little bit off, an offshoot of Gehinam. They all descended uh, where the B'nei Korach were able to uh, perch themselves and uh, say Shira. We have Midrashim as well, which trace, as we mentioned earlier, the Pasuk says, Adonai haye with regards to the tefillah of Hana in Shemuel, Aleph, Perik uh, Beit. And uh, the question is, uh, it, her reference in the eyes of the rabbis is to, uh, to, to, the, to the Sheol of Korah. Why is Hana talking about this uh, destruction of Korah? The understanding is that Hana and Shimoel are descendants in some way or fashion from Korach. We have one or two Pesukim that perhaps refer to that, but that's coming from this statement of B'nei Korach Nomet. We have other Pesukim in the Torah. Some of the Fashim even pointed out where there seems to have been a continued lineage from the family of Korach. They were all knocked out. If they all burnt or were swallowed, you couldn't have a continued lin- lineage, but there was because some weren't. Amar The Gemara doesn't describe why, by the way, over here. We have separately the Midrash that says that they did Teshubah in the 11th hour but our Gemara has no reference so it. it just says they didn't die as the Pasuk tells us oh, did they actually die when they died followed, or they died or they still alive the, the, the Adat yeah. Oh, so here you're going to have to read this next Midrash and help me with it because I'm not certain uh, there's a Mahlok and how to understand it if I remember correctly did they actually never die because the Pasuk does say that they were Yaredu, hayim she'ola. they were alive as they went down does that mean they're actually still alive I think if if I remember correctly, the Rashbam has such a statement that they're still alive and that's why we're going to have them calling out. But the counterclaim is, are they still alive or are they still alive in spirit in some respect? He can't. I mean, to, to, to physically suggest they're still alive... It's, so of course, very difficult to suggest. Uh, to, to alternatively say there's something, there's a remnant, a metaphysical remnant, and it even plays out in some sort of audible way, as the Gemara will suggest, well, that's certainly a reality, and that's taking off of that pasuk of <laughs> says the Gemara, uh, tells the following, Curious story. Zimna hada means one time. Hadah, Had means one. Ziman, of course, means time. One time. hava azilna. Azil means to go. Anna in Aramaic means I. Azil, Ana, the conjugation is Azilna. I was going, I was walking, Be-urha, we know that from ruch. Hayim, the way of life. So on my way. So one time I was walking on my way, Amali there was an Arab uh, uh, merchant of some sort, an Arab uh, guy, that's what the Gemara means when it says, tayya said to me, come, like Tashima, come, I will show you de I'll show you the swallowed area and people of Korah. You're kidding me. Azil, I went. Says Rabba Baba Hana. Haza tere kanafak kitra I He showed me. We saw two biz'eh. Rashi says it's a nekev. Nekev means a hole. There were two holes in the ground. Nafak like like nafkami now coming out of them was kitra. Kitra means smoke. And so there's smoke emanating from two holes in the ground. Shakal, the Arab man, takes Gibaba de Amra. Amra refers to semer. Semer means wool. And Gibaba means a clump. He takes a, a, a little bit of, of wool he dampens it, he puts it into maya, into water, and he places it on the top of his spear. So here's the Arab man together with Rabah, Baba, Hanah, the two holes in the ground, some smoke coming out of them. He's holding on the top of his spear some wool which was dampened with water. And he puts it over the place where that smoke's coming out of, him, and then shows me the wool and it's singed. Ahrich, <clears throat> it's singed, meaning it was scorched a little bit by, burnt a little by the fire. Amarli says to me, the Arab man. Well, what was the purpose of showing that? There's still burning. There's something actually present there. It's really hot. This is not a simple area where there's just some mist coming out of the. Ground. This is a burning kind of a, a fiery uh, a place. Amarli, he says to me, asit mashamat. He says, listen and pay attention to what you can hear. And I heard, says, that they were saying, and again, he's understanding and accepting. This is the place where Korach and Adato were swallowed up. They were saying, what they were exclaiming was, Moshe and his Torah is true. And Han, they're talking in third person about themselves, are liars. Meaning, we are liars. Amar Li, the uh, Arab now, said to Rabba Baba Hana, as he recalls it, Kol taltin yome, yomin mehadera lehu Gehennam, Every 30 days, uh, Gehenam uh, uh, turns around these people like meat in a pot. You have to turn over the meat in a pot to make certain that you got all sides, the proper uh, the proper burning, so too it happens with them. And in turn, they get pushed up every 30 days in a way that you can hear them. And indeed, they say every 30 days. The Arab is telling Bar Barachana, every 30 days I hear it, Moshe Emet Moshe and his Torah are true, and we, or they in the third person, are liars. So Jesse, are they actually alive? Are they not alive? I can't really tell you. I wish I understood these sorts of things. But what I can tell you is there's something uh, quite remarkable taking place in the eyes of the Hakamim. Here are the greatest, in the bad sense, the worst rebels of all time. And the Gemara describes their aftermath in a very harrowing way. It should be, in my understanding, again, the same sort of message with regards to them being swallowed alive that I mentioned earlier with regards to Korah. The swallowed alive means you're hinging and forevermore between life and death. To hinge between life and death means to actually have an opportunity to analyze and find yourself. Uh, oftentimes, people will live their life an unexamined life. They won't pay attention to, to themselves. They won't do a true Heshbon ha They won't look into their deeds and understand their direction and trajectory through life. And unfortunately, the end of their life arrives earlier than they expected. And they never had a life in which they actually contemplated what's important, what are my values, where am I heading, what am I doing, how am I getting there but I'm saying it's more I'm saying the torture is a purposeful torture. You can have torture just to make you feel bad. I'm saying to be alive while dead means but again, people say my life, his life flashed before his eyes in the last moment right They had death where their eyes where their life was flashing before their eyes at all times. they finally stopped and thought, well, what are we doing? And in turn, says the Gemara, they exclaimed and continuously exclaimed, Moshe to emet badaim, which means they finally, just like Korah, had an opportunity to actually understand it. Says the Gemara onward, I guess we'll stop over here. Baruch Adonai le'olam. amen.